You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, just a reminder, if you can, in this podcast, it's appreciated if you go in and give a five-star review and comment. That puts you in for a Whitetail Landscapes hat. And please connect with me. I've been getting emails from listeners and it's it's just nice to connect with people you know people want to hear about various topics and information that's relevant to their circumstances and that type of feedback is very helpful if you want to hear of a specific topic and want you know any of the the you know or myself to kind of dive into that i will absolutely do that so send me those otherwise on my docket i've been working on land management plans and kind of applying some new techniques and philosophies more about that this summer we'll get into some new kind of ideology related to agroforestry moisture management things to do with water management you know profiling the soil understanding more of the intricacies of how our ecology kind of works and functions in uniformity and and thinking kind of more in depthly about you know certain topics I have an interesting guest on today, and he's not a deer guy, and it's important to think more, I think, worldly about these. Uh, I've been following a gentleman named Dan Kittredge for many years now. In fact, he was inspirational in some of the philosophies and ideology that I've kind of employed with my clients, and I thought it'd be a good idea to bring him on. You know, he kind of focuses on uh, food health. In, in essence, his knowledge broad spectrum is really I would say instrumental and in thinking more about land ecology and management. He's a northeastern boy like myself, and I think that's a that's a good thing. But he's traveled all over the world, and he's got a very diverse perspective. So let me just get him on the line. Hey, Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing good, John. Thanks for having me. Great, man. I'm happy to have you here. I want you to talk a little bit about your business, what you do, and uh, you know a li- little bit about yourself. <clears throat> well, I run a, a nonprofit. It's called the Biodiversity Food Association, and 
We were founded in 2010, um, and our mission is to increase quality of the food supply, which we mean to talk about flavor and aroma, nutritive value, health-giving attribute. Um, I grew up on an organic farm in um, central Massachusetts and have been basically <clears throat> on the land most of my life. Um, and uh, I've got a farm here now as, in central Mass as well. I got into all this work trying to figure out how to make a living farming and struggling with pest pressure, disease pressure, sort of failure to thrive, and you know, took what I I had been brought up with from the organic perspective and sort of looked into other streams of thought, permaculture, agroecology, conventional, you know, as a, as a biodynamics. There's a whole bunch of other sort of ways of uh, sort of understanding how to work with work with land and sort of integrated a lot of those insights um, into my practice, which turned into, uh, you know, <laughs> much better yields and much lower cost of production and um, time off, able to play with my kids. So that started me teaching workshops and courses to farmers and growers. It's really about working with the bottom of the food chain. Doesn't I tell people, don't, I don't care what kind of plant you're producing, whether it's alfalfa or apple or echinacea or, you know, cucumber, the principles are the same. So I think that's why, you know, I, I might have something to offer here because, you know, plants have been growing for hundreds of millions of years without fertilizer. Um, and if, if we understand how they do it and we can support them, um, you know, we can take our somewhat degraded ecosystems and really cause them to be functioning much more well, very inexpensively and simply. It's, um, it's really about, you know, how does nature work and how can we find those little leverage points um, um, to really address limiting factors. So let's talk a little bit about our landscapes. And I, I know that we don't want to necessarily be so specific, but U.S. based, you know, the deficiencies across the landscape because of, you know, the weather, the misuse, the land use practices, that there's a lot of things that the pollution, there's a lot of things that we've created as, you know, just beings on this planet that have degraded things. In concert with that, you know, you've kind of come up with a system. And that system to me is low cost intelligent it's thinking about like you said the lowest you know the lowest hole in the barrel essentially yeah so i kind of want to walk through what you've seen across the landscape as deficiencies just in general and just ways to remedy that what is your process in thinking through each one of these it could be from looking at the soil to the health of the the plant you know it's it's life cycle etc i kind of want you to get some perspective on the way you look at things yeah well, um, you know, I've, I've, I've been teaching a course called Principles of Biological Systems for more than 10 years now, and it's a two-day intensive, and there's, you know, a few versions of it up for free on YouTube where people might be interested later. But um, I always start off with this um, point about the fact that, you know, most plants are green, and, and I say, you know, the reason most plants are green is because they cover their bodies in chloroplasts in which photosynthesis occurs, you know, you know, they take carbon dioxide and sunlight and water and they make um, sugar and oxygen. And everybody knows that story. And they know that, that, the, that the oxygen gets put out in the atmosphere. And that's what we breathe. But they don't know that nature, that sugar gets put down into the soil to feed the microbes because in nature there's no fertilizer. There's no chemicals. There's no, you know, <laughs> I like to say uh, none of the first six days that God invented fertilizer. Um, <clears throat> plants have been doing this for a long time. And so it's really about, you know, the foundational dynamic of the function of the soil life is really what, you know, connects to the ecosystem functioning well. It doesn't matter where your plant is in the canopy layer. Um, you know, if the microbes in the soil are functioning well, it's going to be functioning well. If they're struggling, 
it's going to be struggling. So the real question for me is what do the microbes need to function? And it's, it's really simple. They need air to breathe. So where the soil's tight, they asphyxiate and they die. And so they can't feed the plant. They need water to drink. So when the soil's dry, they, you know, die of thirst and they stop feeding the plant and the plant struggles. Um, they need food to eat. So there should be, you know, sugar coming down from the leaves. There should be organic matter, you know, on the soil. There should be multiple layers of canopy, ideally. Um, you really want that cycling. Um, you don't want bare soil, effectively. Um, they need They themselves must be there. The full spectrum of microbes must be there. And in many cases, our environments have been, you know, I mean, here in New England and Massachusetts, I think it used to be 98% um, cleared, uh, you know, in the 1830s. And it was, there was no trees. You know, what we've got coming back now is like third growth. They really wore the land out. They plowed on the hillsides. They, they eroded the land. Um, a lot of the, the richness that was here when the white people first came, which is why the trees were, you know, twice, three times as tall as they are now, is because there was, you know, a deep soil there. And that's not there now. So part of what happened is has happened is that a lot of those microbes that are needed to function for the system to function aren't present. So inoculation is a key piece. Um, and then finally, I talk about minerals. Um, they need minerals to build their bodies out of. We need um, copper and zinc and calcium and potassium and cobalt and molybdenum for our bodies to function. The plants need them and the microbes need them. And sometimes there's these little things like cobalt that you might need a pound or two of per acre that if it's not present, 80% of the microbes can't exist. And so, so minerals, microbes, air, water, and food. If you can manage your landscape so that you have those things present at all points in time to the best of your ability, um, that, in my experience, is what causes things to grow well. So there's a, probably a short summation. No, I think that's good, and I think that's actually to the point. I think a lot of people may have missed you know, some of the basics. And that, that to me is the fundamental piece of this where I tied in you is thinking more about the deficiencies and you kind of ended with that and specifically across the spectrum, thinking more holistically, we, we typically think nitrogen, potassium, you know, phosphorus, that those are, those yeah. are the key ingredients in the equation. And we, we don't necessarily think about the forms that are applied you know, we want to stay away. One of the things we've talked about on this podcast is we want to stay away from tillage. Yeah. And, you know, I think you have the philosophy that you don't want your ground bare more than two weeks out of the year. A year. And, and that's, yeah. you know, that's pretty much a standard practice, at least that I employ as well. In the case of a lot of the people that listen to this podcast, you know, they're trying to do throw and grow. A lot of these are cover crops and they're specific yeah. for deer usually easier species to grow, but the deficiencies sometimes produce unwanted plants. And, mm -hmm. and, and that, that's another piece of this. And, you know, can we leverage those weeds or can we use those plants as a basis to understand what the deficiencies are? They're, yes, we can. I don't mm -hmm. think we need to get into some of the specifics, but certain plant species kind of give you an indicator, you know, what may or may not be deficient. And particularly if you have compacted soil, which you brought up earlier is having very aerous ground. The, yeah. the, the piece I want to get into is assessing your soil and taking a look at the those def deficiencies and what are the methods that you would employ to kind of remedy, you know, those specifically. Um, I, I kind of so get I, your philosophy. I guess I'm hearing you talk about mineral deficiencies specifically. Yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, so, but I would say, you know, it's an air deficiency or a water deficiency or food deficiency. They're, they're all deficiencies that need to be addressed, but mineral deficiencies specifically. Um, 
Uh, I generally recommend people take a, a basic soil test. I don't suggest going to the university because usually they're operating more from that, you know, NPK fertilizer paradigm. Um, there's one that I recommend people go to. It's just called Logan Lab, and it's in um, Ohio, and they do about 15 or 16 different elements. And so, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> depending on how how deep you want to get into it, um, I, I talk about that in the course again. That's online for free, but you need to have a certain level of these critical elements present for life to function well. So that's one way if you want to be more high tech about it. The sort of low tech way, um, and, and and the way I would recommend those, you know, calcium deficiency with with limestone, you know, uh, potassium deficiency with basalts, um, rock phosphorus deficiency with rock phosphate, copper sulfate, zinc sulfate, manganese sulfate. So there's different rocks and things like that that you can use. I'm not talking about fertilizers. We're looking to address these things systemically. Um, that's the more expensive, specific, technical way, which is totally good. But depending on people's budgets. The low-tech way is to use um, rock dust and sea salt. Basically, between sea salt's got 92 different elements in it. Um, I generally recommend about 75 pounds per acre per year. I definitely do that on my property from stone wall to stone wall um, just because it's good for my land. And depending on where you get your sea salt from, you can get it for, you know, like three bucks a bag or four bucks a bag. It's basically rock salt. So 75 pounds to the acre is not is not much. Then basalt, rock dust, you can usually get at a local quarry. Depending on where you're at, you got to you know understand what, what kind of what kind of rock they're quarrying. But um, the granites and basalts are best um, anywhere. There's a road, basically. You know, they make roads out of uh, crushed rock and tar. And the tar comes from Alberta or Venezuela, and the crushed rock comes from a hole in the ground, pretty close because it's not <laughs> doesn't make sense to haul rock around because right. the whole continent's made out of it. So. There's a there's a, a waste product called crusher dust or float that oftentimes these quarries have, and they'll give it to you for two bucks a ton or five bucks a ton or ten bucks a ton, and so there's maybe thirty or forty different elements in that, and you know spreading that out across your land, two tons to the acre, five tons to the acre, you can do more if you can if you can do it, really helps to systemically address uh, broad spectrum mineral deficiencies. So. You either go the targeted route with the specific minerals in the soil test or, or just, you know, uh, basalt and sea salt is generally good for anybody, I mean, at least east of the Mississippi. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think some of the Midwestern states, they may have an abundance of, of minerals in their soil. So taking a soil sample and kind of addressing yeah. the de- deficiencies individualistic might be maybe more beneficial in the Northeast. I think your suggestion is more applicable, at least from my experience with the clients that I've worked with. And I think Logan Labs, you know, they have a a full spectrum or at least a a more in-depth spectrum of, you know, uh, nutrients to evaluate, you know, and and in that there's multiple books out there that you can kind of look at what the ideal levels of parts per million, you know, for, uh, we'll we'll just say, you know, uh, sodium, for example. So you you kind of get a, get, get some, you know, awareness and have comparables to see, you know, what you, I guess, where you stand against, uh, you know, what the standard would be. And it's really kind of soil specific, but they, they do, they, they try to generalize it in some capacity. So you're, you're within a range of reasonableness. And the other piece of this is you brought earlier the whole air piece of this and having, you know, I guess, depth, right, to your pore system, whether it's yeah. through having, and one of the measurement techniques we've talked about on this is just measuring your kind of soil earthworm 
you know, volume per square foot. You know, that's a consideration. And they're pumping out, you know, hundreds, thousands of, you know, we'll just say uh, elements of manure in various yeah. forms. And that could be the best way to replenish some of the nutrients that you're deficient in as they kind of consume, you know, the, the various uh, things that, that they, you know, they eat. So it's just thinking more holistically in that respect. And that porosity yeah. is huge because, you know, we're trying to maintain, at least we've seen this over time where we have drought periods and how do you have, you know, the right organic, you know, volumes, humic material to kind of store that, you know, or maintain that moisture in the ground soil. And the depth of that is critical to, to the plant life. And obviously, you know, those root zones, as they kind of, you know, develop lower in the profile, you're likely to harness more mineral composition uh, as, yeah. you know, you know they, they kind of exude, you know, the various sugars, et cetera, and work with the microbes to kind of acidify or, you know, degrade, you know, some of those peds of, of mineral content that's available to them. And so, the depth of your root system is critical in this equation. So I figured, you know, just add, add to the story. So salt salt and sea salt, and there's various options to get sea salt. You can go to the ocean, right? Uh, You can harvest it that way. You can get in bag form application. And what about areas where there's higher sodium content and maybe focusing on the mineral element of that, but what do you do to kind of remove the salt aspect of that? What, what would be the strategy there? Is there any, any, any ways to handle that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you want to put a little extra effort in, I mean, I recommend for people that want an excuse to go to the ocean that you, you know, say I have to go harvest some seawater. It's a farm, farm, uh, <laughs> farm task. And so you just find a spot in the coast to camp and, um, you know, I'd say, you know, get a 55 gallon drum, uh, and, uh, you know, stick it over the high tide line and fill it up with seawater. And then, uh, you need a, some lye and a stick and a pH, uh, paper and you start stirring some lye in until the pH gets to 10.4. Um, and then you let it sit for about 24 hours. So that's why you're going camping. And then, um, you can basically pour the top, you know, 45 gallons off you know, siphon it out or whatever back into the ocean, that's where all the sodium chloride water is and all the trace element concentrate will be at the bottom of the barrel. So there, that way you can get all the trace elements off of the, out of the seawater without, without the sodium, if you got too much, usually that's not an issue um, on the East coast or, you know, it's really like if you get rain below 25, 20, 25 inches a year, then maybe you got issues with sodium. So out in the mountain West, that might be an issue or maybe California, but, um, Around here, sea salts, um, you know, you need way more. I mean, you could do a lot. You, you could do with a lot more sodium than you have, probably, because it rains so much. You're generally low. Yep. <clears throat> yep. Now, those are good. Good takeaways. An easy way to kind of amend that. And for, for those that want to go camping, that's a that's a good option for you. Yeah. Coast, coast of Maine's real nice. <laughs> <laughs> Love so, that rocky coastline. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to. I want to. I want to roll you down another road, and this is thinking more disease pests, those type of yeah. uh, issues. So a lot of people yeah. are planting corn, soybeans, so they're dealing with you know worms and di- di- different issues, right? And you talked about, you know, deficiencies, but the benefit. So once you amend, you know, the soil and you're thinking more holistically about, about the plant life, in your yeah. experience, you know, how has that repelled or changed the perspective on, you know, plant status when you're talking about insects, disease, applying pesticides, insecticides, what have you, 
and, and removing that and, and minimizing that. What, what, what have you experienced at least when you've started to make these changes? Yeah, well, I mean, pretty much across the board, <clears throat> when a plant is actually healthy, it is indigestible to insects and disease. And I tell a little story about a cow and I say, you know, if we're a bunch of us here in this room sitting down together and, you know, when you walked in, maybe there was a, a bale of hay you could have chosen to, next to some of the chairs, you might have chosen to sit on it, but you probably not have chosen to eat it. And people say, yeah. And I say, if we walked a cow in, she might have considered eating it, but probably not have considered sitting on it. And people say, yeah. I say, well, so why would the cow eat it and you wouldn't? People say, well, cows can have four stomachs and we don't. And they can digest complex cellulose and we can't. And I say, yeah. So right then there, you just showed that different organisms can digest different things, right? So um, actually, larvae don't have a liver and they can't digest protein. So when you're, you know, soybean is, is, is building you know, complete proteins out of amino acids because it's got all the necessary nutrients, it becomes indigestible to the larvae or the, the corn or whatever. Um, so there's different families of compounds and different families of, and types of, of pests, but functionally, the, um, the healthier the plant is, the less digestible it is to insects and disease and the more attractive it is to animals. And so if your objective is to attract animals to your property, having healthy, high-quality plants growing there is, like, the best way to do it. Um, so I would say, you know, a good way to test <clears throat> in general what the overall level of vitality of the plants is is with a refractometer, a real, real simple instrument. You know, it's got no battery, costs 30, 40 bucks on, you know, online, and you can use it 10,000 times until you drop it in the cement and break it. And you want a bricks reading of 12 in the leaf of your plants, and that'll tell you if they, if it's at that level, then they're healthy, doing well, and you're going to have animal pressure coming to eat them. And uh, don't be embarrassed if your bricks are more like three or four or five, because that's where most people's are. Just because a plant's green doesn't mean it's healthy. Um, this is a key piece of the puzzle. People don't necessarily understand. Um, and you get those, you know, high levels of of bricks and flavor and aroma and attractiveness to the animals when you have the microbes functioning, digesting the minerals, feeding them to the plant, helping those plant build those higher order compounds. Um, so yeah, it's, it's actually very exciting what happens. I mean, I, I, I tell, I, I tell people on my farm, there's a couple rules. Thou shalt not kill an insect. Thou shalt not kill a disease. Uh, thou shalt not add nitrogen is another one. But, um, I, I figure if, if I've got, um, insects or, or diseases, attacking my plants, that's nature telling me that's the fit type of organism to eat it. If I've got rabbits and raccoons and deer eating my crops, that's nature telling me I'm growing animal food. There so, you, yeah, and there you uh, go. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, so you brought up one little topic there about nitrogen. What is yeah. your theory on that? Because I think that's, that's a misnomer, at least uh, with a lot of people that are planting, you know, cover crops, what have you, you know, they're adding nitrogen in abundance. What, what do you, what's your theory there? Well, um, like I said, in none of the first six days that God invented fertilizer, <laughs> plants have been doing just fine. And most of most most plants in the forest aren't legumes, but they but they seem to get nitrogen. Um, there's I mean, two thirds of every uh, was it seven no seventy eight percent of every breath of air you breathe is nitrogen, right? Yeah, seventy percent of the there's, there's plenty of atmosphere of, of, of nitrogen in the atmosphere in the environment, and nature knows how to access it. Back to the minerals piece, there's this one mineral called molybdenum that you need at about a one pound per acre 
that's the center of what's called a nitrogenase enzyme. And that's the thing that nature uses to, through the microbes, to pull nitrogen out of the air and convert it into a form that's, um, you know, healthy and appropriate for plants. And so um, if you if you don't have enough molybdenum in your soil, then the microbes can't make the nitrogenase enzyme and harvest nitrogen from the atmosphere, and then you got to go buy nitrogen. But if you have that one pound per acre in your soil and you got the microbes present, then nature will do the job for you um, in a much more balanced way. So, so you brought yeah, up, and you're you brought less up. likely less likely to get insect pressure because you're going to get the nitrogen at balanced levels. Yep. Or you put fertilizer down, things grow fast, they grow weak, then the insects attack. Yeah. <clears throat> so you you brought up a concept of you know the introduction of you know where where things get weak is not having the correct enz- enzymatic relationships and. Um, I want to bring up another topic, and I heard this recently in a separate podcast. I didn't listen way all the way through it, but they were talking about the importance of adding humic acids. Uh, have you added humic acids in your spectrum application or not? Well, I would always say that if you're going to be adding a trace element, add it buffered with a carbon source. So copper, zinc, boron, molybdenum, cobalt, um, you know, manganese, any of those, if you're going to be adding them, you absolutely want to be adding them with a um, uh, uh, a carbon source. If you're doing the seawater, um, anything that's a salt, you want to buffer because it's, otherwise it's more likely to leach. Um, I mean, humic materials are great. That's what <clears throat> good earth is full of. It's what, it, you know, the, the darker the color of the soil, the more humic materials are there. They should be built in your soil by the well-functioning mycorrhizal ecosystem as part of the soil life. Um, but it's a it's a totally powerful material. Yeah, and if you're if you're going to be adding fertilizer, any kind of nitrogen fertilizer or things like that, um, absolutely buffer it with the with the humic material. Um, that'll and you can use a lot less and get a much better effect. So let's talk about another topic: uh, inoculation. And for those that don't understand inoculation, I want you to kind of give your perspective on what it is and how to inoculate the plants. And then I want to talk a little bit about plant spacing after that. So why don't we go through your philosophy on the importance of inoculation and what inoculation does to our plants? Yeah. Well, um, I usually say, um, you know, we all know that it's not, that we can't digest our food, right? It's the people in our gut that digest our food for us that 90, 90 plus percentage of the, uh, <laughs> cells in your body are not, are not human cells. They're, they're microbes or bacteria, they're fungi, they're your gut flora. We have this symbiotic relationship with microbes that allows us to digest our food. When a baby is born, you know, there's no microbes between its its mouth and its rear end. The whole alimentary canal has got nobody in it. There's this thing called colostrum, which comes out of the mother's breast before milk, after birth. That's basically a prebiotic probiotic. It's designed to establish gut flora so you have the people in your gut necessary to digest food for you. And if you don't get that well established or you have antibiotics, you're a colicky baby, right? You cry and you can't, you can't, you, you puke and you don't grow, right? It's, it's critical at birth to have a well-established gut flora because that's how we evolved. To, <laughs> that's how we evolved was they're the ones who digest our food for us. And it's basically exactly the same for plants. If plants don't have a well-established gut flora, if they don't have a broad spectrum of microbes present, you know, in the soil around them, on their leaves, et cetera, they're not going to function well. Uh, people have heard about the microbiome. Um, so, yeah, in the same way you want a baby, whether it's a cow or a human or a, a kitten, to get colostrum when it's born, you want seeds 
to be covered with and not with the with with inoculant with these spores of different bacteria and fungi. So when they germinate, when they're born, they have that gut flora there to set up their healthy relationships with. So, um, I yeah, I always strongly recommend. I say, if you're going to take home one thing from this two day course, it's going to cost you five bucks and take five minutes, and be the biggest bang for your buck. It's inoculate your seeds. Um, you know, ensure that when your seed goes into the ground, you've got a, um, a broad spectrum of, of different species of spores of bacteria and fungi, you know, in contact, um, which is really, really simple. I mean, you open a bag of seed, you take a pinch of inoculant, you, you know, put it in the bag, you close the bag up, shake it up. Those, it's basically these powdered spores that you can buy them or you can make your own inoculants. You can harvest inoculants from the local ecosystem. There's all kinds of ways of doing it. Um, but um, and if you're planting seed that's treated, right, the pink seed or the orange seed or whatever, what it's treated with is the antimicrobial, the, the, <laughs> the fungicide. <laughs> so don't. <laughs> Just don't. You know, it's like giving your baby antibiotics when they're born. Like you're, you're not going to get good. You're not going to have – you're going to have a colicky baby if you give them antibiotics when they're, you know, when they're, when they're, when they're born. So, um, yeah, yeah, critically important. So, important. Dan, one topic you just brought up there is natural ways to inoculate and maybe a, give give people a way to do it biologically where you could maybe harvest uh, soil yeah. or, you know, plant life from your resident areas and, and kind of maybe go through that a little bit. Exactly. Yeah. Real easy. Um, again, you know, you think I'm taking a walk. I'm actually doing farm work. Um, so the idea here is basically you go for a walk and you take a, a bucket or a shopping bag or whatever. Um, and you want to look for, um, you want to hit as many different microclimates as possible. So, you know, swamp, uh, field edge, meadow, forest, um, you know, stream, whatever it is. And you're looking for plants that have shiny leaves. Um, basically, you know, a, a shiny leaf on a plant is like a shiny coat on a cow or on a deer you know, or on a kid, <laughs> dull, a dull coat means they aren't doing so well. <laughs> a shiny coat means they are. And the same way with a zucchini plant, you know, if it's got a shiny green leaf, you know, it's doing well. If it's got a little bit beat up yellow looking leaf, you know, it's not. And so, um, what that shine is on a leaf in a plant is the same thing it is in us. It's, it's, it's fat. It's called the, the lipid layer or the waxy cuticle. And basically what that means is when a plant's got a nice, fat layer that means it's well fed it's got more food that it to eat than it needs and the stockpiling is extra food in the form of fat and if you're a plant in nature where nobody's adding fertilizer and you're well fed that means you got a well-functioning gut flora if that all follows mm -hmm. so basically what you want to do is you want to you know <clears throat> on your walk hit different microclimates look at different species find things that look good and just bend down and pick up a handful of soil from underneath each of those plants, stick it in your bag or your bucket. Um, and when you get home, you can, uh, you know, take that bucket, fill it full of water, let the soil settle, settle down and then pour the, pour the water off. And you basically pulled out a bunch of microbes from that soil and you've got a, a water that's like full of all those different broad spectrum microbes um, that you can then, you know, you know, spray under your seed or apply it however you want. Um, but yeah, and you can do that same thing with leaves if you want to look for an inoculant for the leaf surface because plants not only have their roots covered with microbes, they have their leaves covered with microbes too. And so um, 
yeah, you just take the shiny leaves and you put them in a bucket and you cover it with water. <laughs> you fill it with water and you pull the water off and put it in a sprayer and you can use it as a foliar inoculant. Yeah, and that, um, that's so, that's that's probably yeah. the most inexpensive way you could go there. Yeah, and all you have to do is go for a walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it gives you a chance. To <laughs> exactly. So I want to take you down one other road and and seed uh, selection, a seed choice, kind of understanding what the processes. You know, a lot of us are kind of susceptible to the environments. We get caught up in the marketing piece of it too. I've got the best seed, and from this resource, etc. What is the definition of of good seed? I mean, obviously, you know the the. You know, the squeeze is essentially what does it look like, feel like eventually as it develops, but it's got to develop in the right environment, which we've kind of talked about. But how do we get the point of kind of assessing seed quality? What's, what's your philosophy? Well, for starters, it's really important. You know, the health of the mother affects the health of the baby. And so if you get a plant that, you know, was fed fertilizer and sprayed with chemicals so it could live long enough to make seed, um, but otherwise would have died from some kind of disease, it's probably not going to have a healthy baby. The seed, the vigor, the vitality of that seed is going to be low. So what you're really looking for is mother plants that had bricks readings above 12 when they were growing, and maybe grandmother plants too. If you can get a couple generations back from healthy plants, you're going to have the best quality seed, which in many cases is hard, if not impossible, to find on the open market. And so engaging in seed saving is a really exciting thing to be doing if that's in your in your capacity. I generally say to focus on the seed size or weight when if you're buying seed. So basically, you know, if the variety is the same, you know, the seed that is bigger, so there's fewer seeds per pound or, you know, heavier or whatever is, uh, is going to be the, have the best vigor. So in many cases, I mean, if you're talking about vegetable producers and, you know, looking at carrots or spinach or things like that, they really get, pretty close into the detail for, for seeds. I'm not sure about, about um, cover crops and, and corn and, and soy. I don't have a lot of experience buying that, um, but I'm guessing it's probably the same. Mm-hmm. So yep. if you get three different, three different suppliers that are all providing the same variety and they've got seed counts, um, test, test weights, you want to basically get the, the biggest, heaviest seed or the fewest seeds per pound. And also very important is you want to make sure your plants have enough space in many cases, people put plants in tight, um, and what they do really is they read the environment to see how big they can get. And when they're if they're in tight against other other plants, they're not going to be able to realize their full potential. So, again, I'm not sure exactly what people that are working to attract deer are putting out in the forest. But um, when I'm planting tomatoes, I don't put them closer than four feet, and that's one row per bed. It's not two rows. Because a tomato wants to be a big plant, <clears throat> and I want to give it space to be a big plant, and I'm actually going to get more fruit per square foot from one plant every four feet than I'm going to get off of four plants in four feet. Yeah. Um, yep. Really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, and it is interesting. I think a lot of people miss that, and the, the seed spacing and planting philosophies that we have, at least to maximize yield, may be a little bit incorrect. Like, for example, the corn spacing and planting is so tight number of years and quality could be maybe better produced if you were thinking more appropriately about what that space and that plant needs specifically. The other thing is, you know, in those monocrops corn, is a good example, you know, there's limitations, right? There's no necessarily as many synergies when you have these multi-species blends, 
So we're like buffet style. A lot of people that listen to this are thinking more, I guess, appropriate on what are the variety of plants that we can provide kind of like a buffet style kind of food source. And then adding in, you know, the mineral composition and quality, et cetera, and age, you know, a lot of lignified plants aren't easily digestible by deer. So you're thinking about timing a part of this. So plant maturity and sequencing is another piece of this. Um, So I I think that's kind of a, a, a critical element. So I wanted to end on one particular topic with you, and you, you brought up a refractometer, which I think is good. We, I talked about this in a prior podcast. You, you talk a lot about different techniques, simple techniques, observational techniques, what I think is really important uh, if, if people watch your YouTube and, and, and prescribe to that, because I think that's very informational. And again, a lot of this relates to kind of some of my strategies. Your business, and I want to talk a little bit about your business to end with this, is I, I've kind of... I've, I've taken light of the fact that one of the examples you give is a spinach leaf, right? Could be equivalent, at least from this grower to 20 spinach leaves from that grower and having the, the knowledge, at least the awareness that there are differences. Now, I think it's hard to assess some of the rationale behind that. Obviously deficiencies is, is one of those elements, but what do you think in, you know, with your business, I know you're trying to, you've developed a, a, a tool, a spectral tool that that looks at essentially it's 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 a light measuring device essentially the way i perceive it yeah can you talk a little bit about the tool that you've kind of developed where you're at in production and kind of where you're going yeah so um like i said our 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 organization's mission is to increase quality of the food supply and we understand that you know average nutrient levels in food right now is relatively quite low. We understand that it's been decreasing over time. Um, and we understand that there's, you know, any carrot you pull off the shelf is not going to be an average carrot. It's going to be somewhere in a continuum of carrots. And so our thought is if we can help people choose the food that's of best quality, if you've got three, three carrot choices on the shelf and you flash a light at one and it says 20 out of a hundred, you flash out the next one's 40, the next one's 80. All the things being equal, you're probably going to pull the 80 off the shelf, or maybe even if it costs a little bit more. If you know it's, you know, that good from a nutritional standpoint, it's that much more flavorful. Your kids are more likely to eat it. You're actually going to get healthier from it. Our thought is, if people can do that, and the 80s leave the shelf and the 20s stay in the shelf, then there's going to be a, uh, you know, a economic signal to the growers in the supply chain to start focusing on nutrition as opposed to volume. And so, um, you know. We understand that, you know, by <laughs> the, the way to grow healthy plants is to have a well-functioning soil, you know, you're, you're, you're building soil, you've got, you know, you're minimizing or reducing entirely all the chemicals that are being applied. Um, you can, you know, create an environment that's much more healthy. Um, you have humans that are healthier. So it's sort of a, you know, a grand, grand vision um, about how we can use agriculture to really achieve some systemic benefits broadly. Um, but the technology really is, it's called spectroscopy and it's a, um, yeah, I mean, it's how we know what stars are made up of. We can read what something 50 million light years away is made up of with a flash of light. We can read what something, you know, a millimeter away is made up of with a flash of light. And so we've engineered a, um, you know, the first generation is fairly rudimentary, but it's a proof of concept, a handheld consumer priced, little size of a basically TV remote and you flash it at the carrot or you flash it at cucumber or you flash it at lettuce and it'll spit out a reading about, you know, where that sits in the continuum of, of, of quality. So, um, 
yeah, it's uh, you know, there's a couple a couple pieces of the project. One is you know showing that variation is significant. We've done that. We've been running labs for the past five or six years across a couple of continents, thousands of samples, you know, dozens of different types of crops. We've shown that nutrient variations are, you know, this carrot may have as much calcium in it as those three carrots. This spinach leaf may have as much iron in it as those 15 spinach leaves, but it may have 50 times as much polyphenols as that spinach leaf. Um, so depending on which nutrients you're looking at, um, which crop you're looking at, you know, it's 2x, 5x, 10x, and more is the nutrient variation in food right now. It's not small. It's not small. And so we've, we've you know, begun defining that across multiple crops. We've built a basic meter. We've been working with farmers to help them document what the practices are they used to get these results and which seed and things like that so we can dial in on, you know, in an open source fashion so you don't have to listen to salespeople, like what results are people getting by doing what, um, and yeah, I think, you know, it's a big project um, and we're a nonprofit. So that means we're running on donations, not on, we don't actually sell stuff <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> yeah. for the, for the greater good of the world's kind of a project. Yep. But um, yeah, it's proceeding forward very nicely. And yeah, we think we could really systemically revolutionize agriculture and perhaps human health and a few other things. If we can just help people choose what's better for themselves and their families. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the story. And that's the reason I've been so attracted to you, your message and, you know, what, what you're trying to do across the landscape. And I know this is a, a deer hunting podcast and we're talking about habitat management, but there's a piece of this, a human health and then obviously animal health. And I think you brought up a bunch of different topics today. You know, we didn't get in depth of all those, but I think you hit the highlights. And I, I think one thing I take away from this is you know, we've got the essential elements of, of the world that we're focused on, at least people that listen to this, right? It's, it's kind of food, water, cover. And in that, what matters the most is the food quality, no different from what Dan's talking about. And without that, you know, that changes the elements that impact the size of our herd, the quality of the deer that we're eating, you know, those type of things are meaningful in the, in the scheme of things. So beyond just the harvest aspect of it, think more holistically, and try to apply some of these examples. Dan gave some real-world uh, biological, you know, so solutions, sea salt, et cetera, you know, rock dust. You know, those things are are certainly applicable in, in your state, in your area. So take kind of a finer eye and think about these these things kind of more at that, that environmental level. And, Dan, I think your business and, you know, what you're trying to promote, your tools, like you said, the donation, obviously go check out Bionutrient Food Association online, Instagram, et cetera. You know, take a look at what, you know, Dan's team's offering and the opportunities to be a part of that. Cause I think that's a, a, a great, you know, organization and um, I'm, I'm behind you for that. Um, but I think there's some application to, you know, the food that we eat in the natural world as well. And you obviously brought up vegetables, CSAs, all those things that kind of go hand in kind of the uh, small farmer, so to speak. And we've lost that. We've lost that mentality. These farms have gotten bought up. You know, there's a trend I see in another direction, but capitalism, convenience, all those things kind of play in a light to that. And I think, you know, we need to think more holistically about, I don't want to just say, you know, the, the plant life, but thinking about, you know, where everything originates from and how they're handled, managed, right? The food that you're eating, the quality of food. And I think that's really important. At least, you know, that's what I've gotten out of this, uh, listening to you over the years. And um, I'm certainly a, a fan and, and support you any way I can. So I just want to kind of end with that. So anything you want to end with? 
Well, thank you for that uh, <laughs> affirmation. Really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, what just came to my mind was, you know, as a farmer, but also be doing these workshops and courses for people around the region and around the country and other countries. You know, one of the biggest problems that I warn people about is like you're going to draw animals from miles around to your farm. The more you do this, you're going to find pest and disease, you know, insect and disease pressure drop off, but you're going to find your animal pest pressure dramatically increase. So, yeah, if your objective is to attract wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I like you, man. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it, it really, it's, it's, it, I mean, you know, you, you let a goat out into a field and it runs across the field that finds a spot it wants to eat. And you're like, how, why, why'd you go over there? You know, and animals, they're discerning. They're discerning. There's a guy, um, <clears throat> Uh, what's his name out in uh, called Nourishment? Fred Provenza. You read, read his book? Yes, Fred Nourishment. Provenza. Yes, yeah. Right. If you haven't had him on, that he, he might provide some valuable perspective for these guys about about you know how animals teach their their young, you know what to eat and and what tastes good and where to find it. Um, I mean, you can absolutely build a reputation in your bioregion amongst the animals for the best for the best place to eat. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that, con- that concept is, is an introduced concept that thank you for bringing that up. And you know, you're not being, you're not being a deer hunter. That is exactly kind of the mantra here is thinking about that, that lineage and that legacy of building these high quality properties, applying yeah. some of these concepts. And I think that that piece of it, you create this legacy and interest and obviously respectively, your hunting is going to get better. Uh, should you employ kind of the right tactics beyond, you know, just kind of the, the, what we talked about today. So, you know, I, I kind of appreciate that perspective. All right, Dan, well, thanks for being on the podcast and uh, I appreciate your input and insight. And uh, certainly I, I think you're, uh, you're changing things around the country and, you know, I think everyone uh, please follow Dan and, and uh, his, his organization. And like I said, they have opportunities for to donate and contribute. You can buy your uh, spectrometers, right, as well. So there's there's other options there as well. And I refractometer, you can get your refractometer. Oh yeah, there. yeah, and those are yeah, and and, and, and we that's got minerals an, in our mineral depot too. If you're if you're a member, it's a 50, it's five bucks a month. Yep, you can be a member, and then you can access the mineral depot if you're looking for some of the the raw materials. Yeah, as and, well. And, and watch out because Dan and I at some point, right, we we talked him and I personally about maybe doing something at least in my area for people that you know, that want to have a depot or resource. Um, you know, I've got clients yeah. kind of all over the country, but you know, think more holistically about this and you can start your own depot, right? You can associate with, with Dan's organizations. So. Local, local chapters around the country that, that do have their own depots. Exactly. hundred percent. Yeah. That's yeah. great. All right, man. Thanks for your time. We'll talk again soon. Good talking. All right. Yeah. See you Dan. Bye-bye. Bye. Maximize your hunt is a production of whitetail landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.